the Afterwards podcast is taking a break this week, so instead, we are bringing you an episode of our popular Q&A podcast. In this episode, you will hear more from Shahan Mufti, author of American Caliph. Hi, I'm Susan Swain, host of C-SPAN's Q&A, where we spend an hour with nonfiction writers and historians who add context to today's news. Our guest this week is Shahan Mufti, whose new book, American Caliph, recounts an event that's been mostly lost to history, the March 9, 1977 Hanafi Muslim siege in Washington, D.C. That day, three buildings in Washington were seized by 12 Hanafi movement gunmen and were held for two days. The group took 149 hostages, killed a young radio reporter named Maurice Williams, and shot then-councilman and future Washington, D.C. mayor Marion Barry. Mr. Mufti describes the background of the group's leader, Hamas Abdul Khalas, the blood feud between him and the Nation of Islam, a movie about the Prophet Muhammad that fueled the hostage-taking, and the tense negotiations that ultimately ended the siege. Our conversation will begin in just a moment. In the news tonight, bands of gunmen identified as Hanafi Muslims are holding more than 100 hostages at three buildings in Washington, D.C. The gunmen have seized the headquarters of the B'nai B'rith Jewish Organization, a Muslim religious center, and Washington City Hall. A radio newsman was killed in the City Hall takeover, and at least 11 persons were injured. The invaders demanded and got cancellations of the premiere of a new movie about the Islamic prophet Muhammad. Later in this newscast, we hope to bring you updated reports as they develop in Washington. Shahan Mufti, you've just written a book about this siege in Washington, American Caliph, March 1977. What interested you in this story? Um, well, it was uh, all interesting when I found it. Uh, that was the first step. I didn't know about this, like a lot of people I found didn't know about this. I encountered the story in 2015. And uh, this was right after the, the shooting at the Charlie Hebdo magazine offices in, uh, in Paris. And uh, I don't, uh, if you'll remember, that, that was a, the, the magazine, a French ma a satirical magazine, had published some cartoons of the Prophet Muhammad that people found to be offensive. And uh, it uh, led to, I mean, actually, they, they were attacked several times, but in 2015, the two gunmen entered the, editor, the editor's meeting and massacred a, a bunch of the editorial staff, almost half. That was a big moment for me. I, I was no longer, I've worked as a journalist. Um, I've worked for magazines. I've worked for Daily News. Um, and uh, I, I was... It, Kind of, I was shaken by that, and by this time, I wasn't working as a daily news reporter. I was a professor of journalism now, and I talked about it with students. And uh, I decided to write a piece, and I wrote a piece for the New Republic at that time about this idea of the image of the Prophet Muhammad just stirring uh, something on global and, and repeatedly. It's like a repeating, it's like a recurring theme that the image of the Prophet Muhammad kind of stirs these great events. And it was during that research that I came across this paragraph, in, I think it was an academic study, about this time that 12 gunmen in Washington, D.C. held 150 hostages in the city for two days. And I was just surprised. I, I consider myself educated in this world of militancy, Islam, I've covered war, conflict, and I was surprised I didn't know about it. And the moment I read about it, I was gripped. Uh, the journalist in me just wanted to 
find out what had happened. And more importantly, the more I read about it, why it had happened, it became a really important question. That news report was at the, the end of day one. It was uh, two yeah. days, as you referred to. So in the end, uh, were there more casualties than the one radio reporter that they referenced? So the radio reporter, that death occurred immediately. This was the third location that the hostage takers had taken, which was the district building, um, now the John Wilson building in Washington, D.C. Um, so that had happened right in the opening moments of that. Um, there was a big gunfight in the district building. Um, there were several people shot. The radio reporter died immediately. For the next two days, this hostage situation, two full days this goes on, um, there were other people shot at other locations as well, at the B'nai B'rith, too. Um, but nobody died in those two days. There are, as I researched the book, I did find people who died in the days, weeks, months after. And uh, I can tie those to the events that happened in uh, on between March 9th and 11th. And uh, so they, they would count as fatalities from that as well. But really, I mean, usually in, in the record, it's really that one radio reporter who's considered a casualty. We have a clip from this year, 45th anniversary of this event, uh, that is a local television station retrospective mm. with someone who was a colleague of Maurice Williams, the slain young radio reporter. How old was he? He was 24. 24 years old. And uh, this is Kojo Namdi, well known in Washington, D.C., been on the radio all these years mm. and public radio. And let, let's let him tell his story of that day. As we were leaving the press office, Maurice, as usual, said, can I come? And we were like, no, 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 these are for the big boys. You have to get a little older before you can go to lunch with us. And he go like, oh, man, this is always happening to me. No more than an hour later, leaving the restaurant, Kojo saw the commotion at the building and raced back to WHUR, where the phone was already ringing. Another reporter gave him the news. People have taken over the fifth floor of the district building. There's been shooting, and I saw... Maurice lying in the hallway outside the press room. He said he's lying there and there are bullet holes in his sweater, but he's not moving. Maurice Williams had just stepped out of the elevator with Marion Barry when he was shot. Even today, the horror of it all still causes me feelings of pain and anxiety. And when we look back on it, we said, you know, the smallest things in life can make the biggest differences in life. Had he just come to lunch with us, none of this would have probably happened. What's your reaction on listening to that? I did actually interview Kojo um, for my book. Uh, I interviewed uh, over 100 people for this book. And Kojo Namdi was uh, one of the people who did, who was very intimately connected to the tragedy. Um, it's, there were so many people whose lives were touched by this. Um, there were close to 150 hostages. That's, first of all, those people. I spoke to many of them. Um, and they, like Kojo suggested, a lot of them live with this trauma. Um, it was a lot more severe for a lot of them. Many of them were physically hurt. Um, but, it, yeah, they, they, just the scars of this uh, stay with people a lot. And as a journalist, and listen, when I spoke to Kojo, listening to him here, um, 
for journalists, this was, you know, um, especially painful. Um, the one person who died in, in the, during those two days was a young radio reporter who was a really promising young man um, and uh, had been working at, at the radio station, Howard University radio station, only for a few years. Really promising from what I, I learned and read about him. And uh, there was a lot of introspection by journalists as well because journalism became... Uh, a the role of journalists in these two days and the way they got caught up in the whole situation and uh, how the hostage takers, especially the lead hostage taker, used the news media to f kind of further their cause and their demands. Um, Max Robinson was another one who got really entangled in the situation, a prominent, another prominent D.C. journalist at the time. Um, so there's a lot of, the journalists had a lot to think about during and in the aftermath of the siege. For people who weren't involved, we were talking before we started taping, one thing they remember was Marion Barry getting yeah. shot. Who's Marion Barry? Marion Barry was a young, uh, well, not so young, but a pro upcoming a district councilman. Um, the district council was a new entity at that time. Um, it had come around in the 1970s after the Home Rule Movement. And Marion Barry was a transplant to the district, but he was uh, a rising star. Um, he was a council person at this time, but he definitely had his eyes on the chair. Uh, of the council. Uh, Sterling Tucker was the chair of the council at that time. And a lot of people thought and talked about how he had his eyes on the mayor's role. Um, the mayor at that time was Walter Washington. And uh, Marion Barry uh, just, just happened to be at the wrong place at the wrong time. Um, he was getting off the elevator on the fifth floor of the district building when uh, he had gone up the elevator with a security guard because there was also some already some kind of trouble brewing and they had learned over the radio. Uh, but he stepped out of the elevator and was uh, a blast from a shotgun that had been fired by one of the hostage takers. It hit him in, in the left side of his chest and he fell to the floor. This is the same blast that took out the radio reporter, Maurice Williams. And uh, Mary and Barry fell to the floor immediately, um, bleeding from his chest. And uh, and uh, but he was uh, there were three people actually on the floor at that moment, bleeding. Um, one was a security guard, Maurice Williams, in the middle, down a long hallway, and then at the other end of the hallway was Mary and Barry. He was the only one that moved, uh, and he was able to crawl into the council chambers, and that's where he was he was uh, evacuated. That later that same day, he did manage to make a press appearance from his hospital bed. And his actually, the front page of the Washington Post the next morning was a picture of uh, a couple of pictures from the siege that had happened the day, or that was happening, that was ongoing. And one of them was Marion Barry, uh, with his, the left side of his chest exposed and bandaged and, um, and uh, talking to the press. Uh, a lot of people I spoke to. Uh, told me that that is when he launched his mayoral campaign. That's when he decided that this was a moment that all eyes were going to be on him. And in that moment, he decided that he was going to run for mayor, and, and he did. Well, all of the descriptions of your book call the story complex, and it is a complex story. But let's go to the centerpiece of it, the lead hostage taker, someone by the name of Hamas Abdul Khalis. Who was he? 
So Hamas Abdul Khalis becomes a, is a really important character in my book. Um, I obviously at the heart of my book are these two three days in the, the capital, but um, and during this time all of the action that's happening and I try to recreate that uh, as best in as much detail as I can. Uh, but um, my book is also about the sequence of events, the long sequence of events that led up to this. And that was an important part of the story. Now, I didn't want to just create a TikTok of what had happened. I wanted to understand how and why this had all occurred. And that is a, it's a vast story. I try to make it not too complex. I try to tell it simply, but Hamas Abdul Khalis, this man is at the center of the story. He's the man who led this group of host- 12 hostage takers um, to take over these three buildings. He um, was... Uh, How impor- old was he at the time? He was 54 at that time. Mm-hmm. Um, he was uh, born in Gary, Indiana, um, and uh, was uh, my book begins with his uh, him in the U.S. Army. So he was in a, a base in Arizona getting a psychiatric evaluation. That's how I opened the first chapter. Um, he was uh, uh, and that and he was let go from the military based on that psychiatric evaluation. That's something that kind of travels with him throughout his life. He does leave the army though and become a pretty successful jazz musician. He moves to Harlem. He gets there as just as be- the bebop, bebop is developing, he, and he finds pretty good success. He ends up touring in Europe with a jazz band. Um, but in that Harlem jazz scene is where he also finds Islam. And the Nation of Islam, the black nationalist movement that was headquartered in Chicago, but had built temples across the Northeast and the Midwest, he ends up at one of those temples and becomes a disciple of the leader of the Nation of Islam, Elijah Muhammad, and rises through the ranks of that organization very quickly. In the meantime, he's attended, got a bachelor's degree from City College. He's attended graduate courses at Columbia University. So he's doing quite, he's an impressive candidate for Elijah <coughs> Muhammad and rises through the ranks of that organization. But then breaks away and creates his own, own um, Hanafi group, um, finds a new spiritual master. I don't want to get too far into uh-huh. the story. I want to go back to the discharge from the army because uh-huh. you raised the question. You said this uh, mental uh, capacity question uh, dogs him throughout his life. Mm-hmm. You raised the question of whether or not he was playing the system at the time. And yeah. n- never really reconciled as to what the truth was. Uh, yeah. Uh, and it was, this was a question, this was an important question for the, question for the negotiators, uh, when they were negotiating the siege. They needed to know, they wanted to desperately find out if they were dealing with somebody who was rational and who was all there and that who could be expected to behave in a certain pattern of behavior. Um, it, it, he was an exceptionally charismatic and the word manipulative was used by some of his the people who had interacted with him. He was a charismatic leader. He he knew also how to knew how to manipulate people to and bring them around to his cause, whatever that may have been at any point in time. Um, he uh, he definitely and then he was in it. I mean, after late in later decades, he ended up in another psychiatric facility. Conveniently, though, every time he would run into trouble with the law is when his uh, psychiatric difficulties would arise, and he avoided federal charges based on this. He avoided going, getting deployed to Europe during the Second World War based on this. So his him being mentally unwell 
um, if he was, always kind of coincide. Always, it, I always had to balance that against his real um, ability to manipulate situations and his genius at it, and also his his charm at being able to get people to give him what he wanted. So it is a question that lingers, and uh, uh, by the end of his life, um, it was a question that was kind of lost. He ended up back in the system, and and he um, people didn't no longer really even had those records. And and he's he at the end of his life, he was no he had a lot of psychiatric evaluations throughout his life. But at the end of life, nobody even thought that he was in any way unwell. Or and another theme that runs with his story is patriotism. Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, Collis was, again, he was born in the Midwest, Gary, Indiana. Um, he served in the U.S. Army out of choice. He wasn't drafted. He, he actually en- enlisted before the draft in the Second World War. Um, but then he was, had a period of disillusionment with America when he joined the Nation of Islam. That was, again, a black, black nationalist, black separatist organization, um, and their creed was uh, one that really cast America as a nation and not positive light at all. Um, in some ways, it was the enemy. Um, but he, when he got out of that organization, he really, under the tutelage of his new master, who's an immigrant to the United States, he really embraced this idea of America as the perfect place, as America as the land that really mm, will deliver to him in, in many ways but also in his in his religious imagination that is that America was the perfect place for Islam and for his new religious cause so he and that is something he really held on to um, and that is something that got him into trouble with the nation of Islam Elijah Muhammad's organization um, but again until the end of his life even after all this had happened and he was he um, ended up back in the uh, incarcerated and all. He really, um, you know, stood by this idea that everything that he was doing was to serve America, and that even the events of the March 1977, even the hostage taking, was um, his desire and attempt to um, give America uh, a chance and for uh, for and to protect America almost. And and in his mind, this all worked out, that he truly did believe that. So his break with the Nation of Islam, and uh, specifically Elijah Muhammad, is critical to the ultimate events. Yeah. Why did he break with them? He, um, he broke with them for what seemed like, well, from the records that I was able to obtain, I, I got, uh, the FBI had kept track of Hollis uh, just uh, <laughs> uh, for almost two decades after the 19... Soon after he joined the Nation of Islam, um, the FBI started tracking him very closely. They had him on a security index. So the the FBI had a a lot of records, thousands of pages of records on Hollis. Um, So the sequence of events that led him to break away from the Nation of Islam in Chicago... he, He went to Chicago to the headquarters and was working directly under Elijah Muhammad. In some ways, he was almost... Along with Malcolm X... Elijah Muhammad's right hand. Uh, he was uh, his personal. He was his secretary. He was the national secretary of the organization. But he was handling Elijah Muhammad's personal business, his travel, a lot of things in the temple in Chicago. 
Um, he broke away uh, f- uh, in a in a kind of in a courtroom setting in the Nation of Islam temple, where Elijah Muhammad uh, ruled against uh, one of the members of the Nation of Islam, and Khalis really thought it was an unfair ruling, um, and and decided to pick a fight with the ultimate leader of that organization, and he was ejected very quickly. He had already been butting heads with a lot of people in that organization. He was a really a large personality and he coveted that he desired that leadership role in the organization but that was a very tight group of people at the top of that organization and a lot of people in that organization had identified him as trouble that organized the top of that organization was really Elijah Muhammad's family and Khalis was an outsider um, Khalis took that very personally that ejection um, and when he found his new spiritual master who took kind of showed him the ways of more traditional Sunni Islam, he very quickly, he always um, positioned himself in opposition to the nation of Islam. So his religious, new religious beliefs in Sunni Islam were always um, a way to attack almost the nation of Islam. So tell me about the Bengali Muslim who became his, his next mentor and what it was that appealed to Khalis about him. He is a fascinating, mysterious character in my book. Um, Dr. Tasibuddin Rahman was his name. He, um, they actually, I, I found during the writing and research of this book that this was actually a pretty thriving community of um, Muslims. Well, Muslims from the Bengal region of British India. Uh, India was still a British colony and, uh, uh, and had been for over 100 years. Uh, almost a hundred years at this time, um, and uh, a lot of these people were coming on British vessels and were seamen who were traveling across the world as merchant uh, um, seamen, and a lot of them ended up in um, U- U.S. ports, especially New York, and a lot of them jumped ship in the New York port, and they developed a really thriving community in Harlem um, during the 1940s and 50s. Um, Dr. Rahman, Khalas's spiritual leader, he he was among from that community, and he practiced. He was a faith healer. He had you know some side hustles, but he also worked as a cook at a restaurant. So he's a really I know I found ads of his of his spiritual healing practice in newspapers from the time in New York local newspapers with a phone number to call if you wanted to be spiritually healed. So a mystic. Um, very mysterious. I was able to get his uh, immigration file uh, during this research, which had never been seen before. And I was able to find out a lot about him through that. I was able to also track down some of his relatives, his descendants, who live in the U.S. now. Um, he uh, is really... Saw, it was a mutually beneficial encounter when Khalis found this man, because Khalis found somebody who was telling him what he wanted to hear, which was that the Nation of Islam the largest, most important Muslim organization in the United States at that time, which Khalas had broken away from, was a evil Zionist plot to destroy Islam and America. And Dr. Rahman found a really young, charismatic young man who had been at the top of the Nation of Islam and was ready to help him um, bring his message to more people. And so these two men partnered in the late 1950s and through the 60s until Dr. Rahman died and uh, developed this Hanafi organization together. With the goal of challenging the Nation of Islam for primacy? 
Yes. I mean, yes, a lot of their plans were built around dethroning Elijah Muhammad and taking leadership of American Islam. And that is part of the reason why the title of the book is American Caliph, is that uh, the, this is not the only tussle going on for the leadership of Islamic America uh, through the 20th century. And this is just one strand in that story. So Khalis uh, d- develops his own sect, essentially, and starts recruiting members. One of the <clears throat> most prominent is a very familiar name to people today, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. That's right. How did they associate and what did he do within that sect? Um, that's the name that Khalis gave to Louis Alcindor, um, who was, uh, was with the Milwaukee Bucks at that time. Actually, when they met, he was still at UCLA. Um, he was at UCLA and had, was a very exciting prospect in the professional basketball. Um, it was interesting. Khalis uh, and uh, Kareem's father had actually played in the jazz circuit in Harlem together briefly. They knew each other. And it was uh, after uh, Khalis's uh, master had died, Dr. Rahman, um, Khalis was kind of adrift for a while. Uh, and it, at this time, Elijah Muhammad was really rising with one of his protégés, the boxing champion Muhammad Ali. And so once again, it's, it would happen in almost... In opposition to that whole dynamic happening in the Nation of Islam, Khalis spotted Kareem Abdul-Jabbar on TV one day uh, wearing a pendant during an interview, which was a crescent and a star. And um, he saw that, and he was immediately intrigued. Uh, he wondered where Kareem was getting his Islamic teachings from, and he immediately called Kareem's father, uh, who uh, who did not know about Khalis's plans or his uh, where he had ended up in life at that point, but um, he relayed the message to Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, who then came and found Khalis in New York. And that it, it, they, they clicked suddenly very quickly and very intensely. And Kareem kind of dropped everything for a while um, that summer and kind of just drowned himself in Khalis's teachings. And he became his spiritual leader. And that is how Kareem came to Sunni Islam was through the Hanafi organization, Khalis's organization. Is it safe to say that um, that Khalis could not have done what he did to build his group without Kareem Abdul-Jabbar's backing? Oh, Kareem was instrumental in developing the Hanafi organization. The Hanafi organization was in New York, and it was really running out of Khalis's apartment where Kareem arrived. Um, he would have, uh, Kareem at this time, uh, soon after they meet, signs a, a really lucrative contract in the NBA with the Milwaukee Bucks, and he moves to um, Wisconsin. Uh, but he also starts bankrolling the Hanafi. He really, truly believed he was taken by the Sunni Islamic message, and uh, he was a true believer. He found it to be a good uh, balance to the kind of more militant attitude of the Nation of Islam. Uh, Kareem found Khalis's teachings to be patriotic. Uh, he found them to be reasonable, and they were based, a lot of them were based in love for all humanity, regardless of race. And, and, and Kareem liked those ideas. He genuinely was drawn to those ideas. Anyway, he decided that he would bankroll the operation, basically. Um, and the most fateful decision that the Khalis and Kareem made together was to move the headquarters of the organization from Harlem to Washington, D.C. And they found a beautiful, beautiful house up on 16th Street here in D.C., uh, five miles up the street from the White House uh, in uh, um, 
in the Shepherd Park neighborhood. Um, and uh, it was a very nice mixed neighborhood at that time. A lot of Howard University folks, a lot of journalists, um, a lot of well-to-do black and white people. And they established there, they established the Hanafi headquarters in that house on 16th Street. And uh, Still exists really, today, right? Still exists today. It's right there. And members of the Hanafi community still live there. Um, and uh, they, they uh, that is really where Khalas's mission, once he's in the heart of the capital, uh, in the heart of American power in some ways, that's when his organization really takes off. And that's where he begins really challenging the authority of the Nation of Islam and really is able to put up a fight for the supremacy of American Islam. So on January 18th, 1973, that uh, competition between the Nation of Islam and Khalas's group becomes a blood feud. Yeah. What a what a difficult chapter to read in your book. What happened that day? And a difficult chapter to write. I, I put that chapter off for a long time. It it's a it was a horrific crime. At the time it was the morning after it was called the bloodiest uh, massacre in the history of Washington DC. Probably maybe still is. Um when Hollis's challenge to the Nation of Islam became became intense enough, um mm. Members of the Nation of Islam decided that uh, it was time to eliminate him, essentially. And uh, a group of hitmen, uh, assassins, um, invaded the Hanafi headquarters, the headquarters that Kareem Abdul-Jabbar had purchased for the organization, entered it one afternoon and went on a rampage uh, and massacred um, seven people, shot a lot more. But, and the, the day, the evening ended up with seven dead bodies at the Hanafi headquarters. Those dead bodies range from a man in his 30s who was not uh, related to Khalis, but all other people, the six others, were related to Khalis, including his children, um, including a nine-day-old child that Khalis had just had with his second wife, and several other children and grandchildren. Um, Khalis himself was not at home that day. He was their target, though. He was. And the assassins, after they had left a complete ma- I mean after the massacre had they had massacred all these people they stayed around and with the blood-stained carpets and the blood-stained walls with people you know it's it, they were all shot some of them drowned in bathtubs with all these dead bodies around the assassins sat there for a while until Hollis showed up to that house and uh, Hollis uh, and but in Khalis tussled with one of them, and, but was able to escape. And then the gunman ran out, and Khalis then entered his house. And this is again January 1973, and then went from room to room, uh, screaming in horror as he encountered bodies of his his children and grandchildren. That was really the moment that Khalis cracked in some ways. Um, it. it he changed from the people that I spoke to who were there with him. Um, he was never the same after that. Um, and uh, those events really, in the book, I do draw out how those events, that murder, massacre in 1973, is directly related to the hostage takings in 1977. So we're at the 30-minute point, and I, I want to make sure we get the bulk sure. of the, the story and, and leave enough for people to sure. want to read your book yeah, <laughs> afterwards, because there is there's much to learn. So we have... Two of the stools, um, of the three-legged stools, two, two of the legs, rather, of the stool, 
uh, of the, that's forming Khalas's mindset, the blood feud between him and the Nation of Islam and these, the massacre of his family. Right. And both groups had uh, hatred of Zionism. Mm-hmm. And then the third, which you referenced in the beginning, was this film about Muhammad. I want to play a trailer, and you can then tell us how sure. this mi- mixes into the Absolutely. story. Let's watch. Muhammad is, is a liar. Liar? Where is the lie and where is the truth when it hasn't been spoken yet? These are Arabs who have betrayed the religion of their fathers. They follow a lunatic they call a prophet. They are led by greed. We are led by God. When you are dead, Hamza, cut your heart out. Taste your blood. These are the disciplines the prophet puts upon you. You may not harm a woman, a child, or any old person. Strike only at those who have expelled you, who have stolen your rights and enriched themselves with your possession. Your book details 10 years of twists and turns by the producer, and we probably don't have time to go into this. But what I want to do is fast forward to spring of 1977, four years after the massacre in Washington, D.C., of his family. He's in New York City, sees a poster for this movie. Take us into what happens then when he sees that poster and how it gels in his mind. This movie uh, was really the pretext for what happened on March 9, 1977, as the Hanafis put it. Um, Their first demand when they took the hostages was that this movie that was premiering in New York and Los Angeles that morning, that afternoon, be taken off the screens and that their reels be removed from the country. Um, Hollis found this film, like you said, he was in, in New York um, in 1970, early 1977. Um, by this time, it, he has been in back-to-back trials uh, for the, uh, the men who had uh, committed the atrocities at his, the headquarters and had killed his family members. They had been granted new trials. Some of them had never been convicted, but Collis and his family and that community had been stuck in a series of trials that seemed to be at that point in time going nowhere. Hollis's daughter, who had been shot several times in the head, had been asked to mm, repeat that testimony in front of several juries. Um, so Hollis is in a very strange frame of mind at that time. Kareem Abdul-Jabbar has drifted away from him because of a lot of reasons. And um, Hollis sees this movie poster. And th- during the testimony later in the trial for the hostage-taking, he said that this was the moment when he decided that he had to do something. Um, in his mind, he saw... So none of the people that we saw in this trailer, just to be clear, are portraying Muhammad, the Islamic prophet. That is a touchy subject in Islamic history, in Muslim societies and Islamic civilization. The image of Prophet Muhammad, the, just portraying his face, is something that is not done. Uh, Khalis believed that in that taboo as well and practiced that taboo as well. When he saw the poster, um, he interpreted this to be a crossing of that line. He believed that Hollywood and through its agents like Mustafa Akkad, the Syrian-American director of this film, uh, had decided to desecrate the honor of his prophet, Muhammad. 
And everything in his mind, his feud with the nation of Islam, which he believed was also backed by the same agents of uh, the enemies of Islam, the um, the people who had uh, who in his mind were running the criminal justice system in America, uh, who had failed to deliver justice to him uh, through these trials, the people who ran the nation of Islam. In his mind, it was all the same forces that were acting against him, and he decided that he this film is what he would take a stand on, and he timed the hostage-taking and the siege of Washington, D.C. for the premiere date of this film. There is, though, that is what he, uh, that is what he said, but I do also believe that he, by this time, uh, had decided that he would exploit some of the divisions within the Muslim world, abroad in Asia and Africa, in the heart of the Middle East, between forces that were supporting this movie project and uh, some conservative clerics who were really opposed to this project. So the Muslim world was gripped with this project the whole decade that it was going on, too. And that this project had already caused some trouble in the Middle East and in, in, in Asia and South Asia and the Muslim world. Khalis knew about that. And I, he also, at this point, the way I tell the story, he, while he was rising to defend the honor of his prophet, ostensibly, he was also ready to launch a, an, a, a major, spectacular attack um, that he knew would grip the media's attention, that in which he would be able to catapult himself into recognition in Muslim capitals, in Cairo, in Jeddah, in Islamabad, in Tehran. He knew that international coverage, if he launched this spectacular attack, um, that he would be a name recognized also in the Middle East, not just in America, but also abroad, which was a very important piece of the puzzle. So how was he able, you said that he had been under surveillance by the FBI for a while, to build such a cache of weapons at that house five miles away from the White House? So, Susan, this is something that I actually don't, uh, I mean, it's not in too much detail in the book, but the ATF, the uh, under the Treasury Department at that time, was ready to raid the headquarters, the Hanafi Center, I, I do mention it in the book briefly, but they were ready to raid the headquarters um, at the Hanafi Center a few months before the attack on Washington. Um, at that, they all the Hanafis had gone on a spree of buying weapons and ammunition throughout the Washington, D.C., Maryland, uh, Virginia area. Um, they were being tracked. Um, they knew they were... But the Hanafis did not have a history of violence. Uh, Khalis had never really, I mean, he had been in trouble with the law. He had tried to rob a bank. He had, uh, you know, he had been on that kind of edge of, um, you know, do, doing the illegal, and he had done illegal things, but he had never been violent. And the Hanafis were recognized even in their immediate neighborhood, and the community was recognized as a, a healthy community, and they didn't, they weren't, nobody was necessarily scared of them. The Justice Department stopped that um, raid from happening because um, the Justice Department at that time was trying to prosecute the murders of the Hanafi family. So they needed the cooperation. And, and it was an interesting moment just months before this siege where the Justice Department and the Treasury discussed this case. And, and, and the Justice Department went out and, and, and they decided to call off the raid because they truly did not believe the Khalas or the Hanafis were capable of doing anything truly violent. 
Although they were storing a lot of weapons in that house. They were. March 9th, 1977. I want to go through the three places where members of the sect took hostages. The first step was the B'nai B'rith yeah. headquarters. Why there? Well, this was the largest, most oldest, most prestigious Jewish service organization in the United States. Um, in Collis's mind, of course, there were Zionist forces, the Jews of the world that had conspired uh, in all, you know, in every a lot of things that had gone wrong in his life. Whether he was looking at it through a rational mind or not is a question. But in his mind, um, uh, this Jewish organization was uh, his prime target in some ways. How many hostages there? Most of the hostages were at B'nai B'rith. So over a hundred hostages were at the B'nai B'rith. And he also used that as his headquarters for the next couple of days. He was part of the party of the Hanafis that ended up at B'nai, that took over that building, the first building they took over on the morning of March 9th. And that is where he created a command center of sorts and where he was receiving phone calls, making phone calls, making demands, communicating. And and while six other men in that building, Hanafis, were holding over 100 hostages. Second stage was the a group entered the Islamic Center of Washington during prayer time. Right. Why was that a target? Um, Islamic Center was a, a, this was a very well-planned and well-thought-out attack. Um, would the Islamic Center attack happen a couple of hours? Just as the B'nai B'rith had been fully taken over, the police in Washington, D.C. heard on the radio frequencies about another takeover at the Islamic Center. Nobody connected these at the time. They thought maybe this were this just a coincidence that two places have been taken over. Uh, the Islamic Center was really the moment that the Hanafis took over the Islamic Center is where this crisis in Washington that was very much a local police matter until that point became uh, an international crisis. Some of the people in the Washington, uh, in the Islamic Center of Washington, held diplomatic status. They specifically targeted the imam of that Islamic Center. And again, with this attack, Khalis was no longer just talking to the district, no longer simply talking to Washington police. He had suddenly captured the State Department's attention, and the State Department immediately was engaged. He had captured, and most, more importantly, he had captured the attention of Muslim capitals where these, the diplomats, some of them, were from. How many hostages there? There were about a dozen hostages at the Islamic Center, mostly Muslim. Of course, B'nai B'rith was mostly Jewish hostages, employees of that organization. Site number three was the one we discussed, which is where Maurice Williams lost his life. And Mary the and district Burridge, yeah. building. Why would the district building? You, uh, district of Columbia. Um, the District of Columbia building, uh, John Wilson building now, is a couple of hundred yards from the White House. Um, I, uh, President Carter, who had been in office all of a month and a bit at that time, could actually see from his residence uh, the fifth floor of the district building, which is what the Hanafis took over. They were uh, at the district building. They were expressing that was kind of the third prong of the attack where um, they were attacking the district for the the in response to the just the justice system of the district washington dc that had in their mind failed to deliver justice to them they wanted to capture mayor walter washington um but the the hostage takers took a wrong turn in the building and ended up on the other side but still took several employees of the Washington, D.C. city um, hostage in that building. But that was kind of the most local um, 
in some ways the most local uh, attack, but it was also property on the federal triangle. Uh, very important. It was just stone's throw from the Department of Justice. It was surrounded by federal power, uh, including the White House. And so with that third attack, it was definitely not a local district uh, uh, law enforcement situation anymore. The FBI quickly jumped in. President Carter ordered the FBI to start investigating and helping the police, and uh, the matter became federal a federal concern very quickly. What were his demands? The movie, first demand, and that was the only demand for a while. Uh, and uh, it puzzled the negotiators, the police at that time. Uh, but quickly, his second demand came out that he was actually looking for the people who had entered the Hanafi headquarters four years earlier and massacred the family. Khalis wanted them delivered to him at Brene Brith, um, and everybody presumed it was to execute them. Um, in his mind, Khalis's mind, that was the only justice left. Um, that since America had not delivered the justice, that he wanted, he would deliver justice. He would, you know, execute justice himself. Um, that was the second demand. Um, and then a third demand emerged, uh, which was a demand for $750. And that was one that took me a while to tease out. But that was really um, a demand. It was a price of, uh, it was a court fee that he had paid uh, at one point in the trial. Uh, of the of his family's murders um, uh, for an outburst that he'd had during the trial uh, against one of the Nation of Islam assassins. And he had to pay a court fee to get that, um, to just kind of continue the trial. In his mind, that $750, he, he, he always, in his mind, that was the price for justice, that he would get that $750 back. There was a fourth demand, though, that emerged at the end of the first day, where um, Khalis... Uh, not only was demanding that uh, the assassins, the people, the gunmen who had entered the headquarters, that they be delivered, but also that Wallace Muhammad, Elijah Muhammad's son, who had taken over the Nation of Islam, the organization, and his star disciple, Muhammad Ali, both also be delivered to him at the B'nai B'rith headquarters. That last demand, I believe, he was improvised because the night was approaching and he knew the morning papers would be running very soon. And I think he wanted some star power to his crisis. And he decided to drag Muhammad Ali into it. Earlier, you mentioned the role of the news media was something that would be examined. Here's our next clip. This is Max Robinson, mm -hmm. ABC ultimately anchor, yes. um, who was live on the phone with him in the middle of the siege. Yes. Let's, well, so we'll hear Carlos's voice as well. Let's listen. But once the film is removed from this country, once you are asking that those responsible for the deaths or who killed your children be brought to the neighborhood building. And the ones that killed Malcolm. And the ones that killed Malcolm. That's right. I want them. And you're asking for the $750. I want them. And the $750. And be sure you make on the radio that I've turned down millions of dollars, so it's not the 750 but this dog-ass Judge Braben. He holds me in contempt of court because I charged the murderers that murder my babies. Now, what do you think about that? And you think I'm going to roll over and play dead? What do you think I am? Some kind of jokester? I take my face serious. 
So we have just about 12 minutes left mm-hmm. uh, in our conversation here. So what was a journalism professor uh, when you looked back at the role that journalists played in this 48 hours? What did you what were your conclusions? Uh, Max Robinson emerged as a really important character for me. He was, I felt, a kinship with him. Uh, he's a journalist in my, he's a journalist, big journalist character in, in my book. He got roped in the worst of all, uh, uh, into this whole hostage situation. Actually, after this phone call ended, he started receiving threatening phone calls. He had to go into hiding that night, emerged from that hiding the next morning, went straight to the Hanafi headquarters, and did a piece to the camera there, a very sympathetic piece, actually, to the Hanafis, um, which he later reflected on later in life as well and got some criticism for at that time. The news media, we have to understand, this is perhaps the first real live terrorist attack or militant attack in the United States that was covered live. Um, the electronic news gathering vans were now technology that was available at local level in the affiliate stations here in Washington, D.C. and a lot of cities. Um, so this hostage situation, this siege on the Capitol, was being broadcast live. Um, and it also made the evening news about uh, all the big networks. Um, the media were a really important piece of the puzzle for Hollis from his perspective. He knew that uh, he very quickly went on the phone lines. He knew he had a plan to engage the news media. He was taking phone calls. He was making phone calls out there, making sure that the news of the capital, the siege was kind of wall-to-wall coverage all across the country. Um, Journalists did not have a a code of ethics or have much practice around how to deal with a hostage situation, a terrorist attack, where demands were being relayed through them to negotiators to law enforcement. This was, the journalists were coming up with solutions and ideas and sometimes really bad ideas on the spot, on the fly. It was breaking news. They didn't have, there wasn't a lot of time for reflection or coverage or, or you know, uh, consideration. And a lot, they, there were a lot of moments in this. Um, when I spoke to the negotiators, uh, who were the police chief included, and uh, FBI negotiators, others from intelligence agencies, they all, some of the most precarious moments that they remember, that they pointed out from that two-day period, were when something happened on TV. And it, that trailer that we just watched of the movie, about a few seconds of that movie had played at a television station. Uh, a television station had just decided to broadcast that. That became a really dangerous moment because uh, if Collis found out about that those images had been broadcast in Washington D- TV in Washington, D.C., it could have set him off. He also got caught in a live uh, daytime show, like a, a, a talk show. And that host didn't handle the situation very well and sent Hollis into a rage on live on the air. Those are the moments that negotiators now remember as the moments when they thought they would lose control. And they were fairly sure that he would act out on his threats of killing hostages one by one. There was no doubt in anybody's mind outside of the hostage situations, all the hostages that I spoke to had no doubt in their mind that Hollis and his followers were going could, were capable of executing uh, violence. And none of the negotiators uh, doubted that if Hollis was pushed over the edge, that he could act out and do whatever he thought. So his th- demands that you uh, uh, enumerated before, the movie was stopped. 
immediately. $750 was delivered to him. But there was no way people were going to deliver the the folks that he asked for retribution, knowing that they would be killed in the process. So how did this come to an end? This uh, hit a wall. Negotiators knew they couldn't go around the country picking people out of local prisons, state prisons, and delivering them somehow to a person. It was an impossible demand. Um, the negotiators worked through a hole the first night and into the second day, trying to distract Hollis with menus of lunch and coffee and buying time. That was the only plan that they had after the first two demands had been fulfilled. In the meantime, Wallace Muhammad, the leader of the Nation of Islam, had also flown into the D.C. and offered himself up uh, to, to, to present himself to Khalid, which only complicated matters for negotiators. Um, in the end, um, it was the appearance of three foreign ambassadors, three Muslim ambassadors from three Muslim countries, Yaqub Khan from Pakistan, um, Ashraf Gorbal from Egypt, and Ardishir Zahidi, a very interesting character, the the ambassador from Iran, actually the last ambassador Iran ever sent to this country. These three men offer their services to Washington police and the State Department and offer, incredibly, (laughs) to enter the B'nai B'rith and have a face-to-face meeting with Khalis and try to convince him somehow to let go of the hostages. Um, and they and they did. And they were given clearance from the very top, uh, including uh, the mayor of Washington, D.C., but also the White House. And I, I saw records of those phone calls from Carter. But um, these three ambassadors did end up building, armed with a copy of the Quran, from which they decided to quote to Khalis, and, uh, and accompanied by unarmed police officers, including the police chief, these three ambassadors entered the B'nai B'rith and sat down with Khalis face-to-face. The meeting went on for three hours that night, which I detail in my book. It's a fascinating meeting, but when it, they emerged, they said that Khalis, uh, the ambassadors informed the press that was waiting outside at a distance, that Khalis was ready to release all hostages at all the locations. So the hostages were released. Collis was arrested and went on trial. Uh, there's time that, and we don't have time to tell that story. <laughs> Ultimately, what was his judicial fate? Collis was, uh, after being released, he was uh, arrested again uh, and uh, went to trial. And uh, the, uh, the, uh, he was charged under Washington, D.C. crimes, but they were prosecuted by the Department of Justice and U.S. attorneys. And they were able to make a case, present a case for a vast conspiracy against all. There was only one location where there had been uh, a death in the district building. But that was a first-degree murder charge for the shooter. But they were also, through conspiracy charges, they were able to tie in all the Hanafis at all locations. They had to prove uh, that this was a planned attack, a premeditated attack, and that all Hanafis had to be held responsible for the shots fired in the district building that led to the death of Maurice Williams. Um, Prosecutors were able to do that eventually. In the summer of 1977, the trial was elaborate. It was huge. It was one of the biggest that was. And rapid. I mean, it was really only months after the events. Oh, yes. Months after. And uh, only matched in size and scale to the Hanafi murder, the massacre trial that had happened in D.C. four years early. Um, But this time, Khalis was on trial. And uh, they presented a defense, uh, the Hanafis, which some thought was. interesting defense. They almost used a religious defense that this was all to defend the prophet of the Islamic, uh, the honor of the Islamic prophet. But the jury decided that 
that that they decided to uh, convict all 12 Hanafi men of And various charges. He spent the rest of his life in jail. He left the uh, spent the rest of his life in jail. And uh, the end of the book, I I do describe his uh, experiences after nine eleven during nine eleven. He was in Washington D.C. prison in Lorton Prison when the plane struck the Pentagon here, uh, and I, I figured that actually the plane tr- flew over his mm. prison cell. So in the in the couple of minutes we have left, the, I wanted to sort of tie this all together and ask, is this just a fascinating snapshot in time, or are there some lessons to be drawn about contemporary society that we should be aware of? I'm, I'm a journalist, so I'm always thinking about the now, and I was throughout this story. I was working on this book during very interesting and exciting times in this country. <laughs> Very, very interesting times. Um, I worked on this book through the, signed the contract for this book during the Obama administration, worked on it through the Trump administration, through the Muslim ban talk, through the January 6th siege, through the Black Lives Matter movement. Um, I viewed a lot of the events of the past six, seven years through the lens of my book, and there is a lot in here that uh, helped me understand what was going on around us and you know it's and beyond just kind of the obvious things like the you know the 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 tensions between muslims and non-muslims and muslims in this country and this image of the islamic prophet as a as something that that triggers uh, a conflict um there is a lot about america the store book is called american caliph it is uh and it really unfolds the events that lead up to the events in washington dc these events unfold all across the country i'm following a director in hollywood i'm following Hollis from the midwest to harlem um there is uh, a lot that happens in this book that helped me understand uh what has been happening in america for the past six years um the criminal justice system, the criminal justice system failing people, people's anxieties, frustrations with the American government, with uh, what is being delivered and not being delivered to them. These are all themes that are strong in my book, and uh, I, I do hope that other people see what I saw during the process of writing this book. Uh, is there a you did so much research and, and one wonders how you managed with thousands of pages of individual documents to organize all of it but is there one thing that you remember saying I, this helps me understand it all one piece of evidence that you found that made the whole thing come together Well, I, I guess, yeah, the transcripts um, I was able to, I mean, this is kind of a, a reporting uh, triumph of mine, but I was able to locate the the transcript of the entire um, 19, the trial that happened after the siege. This has been lost. It does not exist in the public record anymore. But I was able to find one person who had held on to the entire transcript of the entire 1977 trial of the Washington siege, which um, uh, it happened to be in a damp garage. It was kind of not doing well, but it was all there. It was thousands of pages. Um, it surprised that, me that you reported that a federal court actually intentionally destroyed records. Well, yeah, I mean, re- routine uh, record retention policies. <laughs> no, uh, you know, it's amazing how this story has uh, 
receded in the background, and we don't talk about it as much. This is the first time anybody's told this story. It's never been assembled by anybody in 50 years, 40-plus years. So um, a lot of it was lost, and nobody has thought much about this or retaining. Some of the records were retained. Some of the federal records were, but the local court records were lost, including the transcript. But I was able to find... Well, uncover that transcript, and, and it's thousands of pages, and it was every word spoken by every witness during the trial, which really helped me, on top of all the other FBI records and everything else that I found, tens of thousands of pages, but that record really helped me piece together the sequence of events in Washington those two days. That is it for our time. There's so much more to this story. We'll invite readers to find out for themselves. The book is called American Caliph, The True Story of a Muslim Mystic, a Hollywood epic, and the 1977 siege of Washington, D.C. Thanks so much for the hour. Thank you so much, Susan. Thanks for listening to C-SPAN's Q&A. And subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts so you'll never miss an episode. And while you're there, please take a minute to rate and review us. You can also send us an email about Q&A at podcasts at c-span.org. Send me your questions, your comments, or ideas. Your feedback is welcome. New episodes of the Afterwards podcast will be back in September. If you like this episode of Q&A, you can follow it wherever you get your podcasts. You can also follow our C-SPAN Bookshelf podcasts and get weekly episodes of all our podcasts that deal with nonfiction books. If you've been enjoying this podcast on Stitcher, please be aware that platform is ending operations at the end of August. But don't worry, you can still find this podcast and all of C-SPAN's podcasts on many other podcast platforms, including Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, and the C-SPAN Now app.